Welcome to another episode of What's New in Wagyu. This is Steven and along with Lane again. What we're going to do today is we're going to answer some questions that have been asked to us by many viewers. And I think it's kind of an interesting thing to go down because we don't talk a lot about Black Wagyu and that's one of the questions today. But we're going to start off everything like we do, well, we have for the last little bit. We're going to start talking about the national market. So as of last Thursday, top 25s have been up about, oh, $10.23, running around $229.59. Steers are up to $223, which is about a dollar ahead of where they were like a month ago. So it's kind of an interesting thing when you start seeing steers and heifers up as much as they are into that 225 to 260 range. You're going to see them closer to $3, I think, before long. And that's going to be a problem. Uh, once live weights get to $3, I'm not quite sure how feeders are able to handle these animals. They're, I, I, I've questioned it a few times, you know, and, and it gets worse and worse, I think, as we get closer and closer. Um, hot 100s have been down $1.42, which I expected this time of year just because of, of the time of year we're at. Uh, stalkers are up about 11.09, which I don't know. Um, there's just no cows. That's why everything's so expensive. And Lane's going to go into that a little bit because he decided to go on vacation this week rather than work. So he, he's going to explain a little vacation bit. Vacation is that. good. I, it was, it was a research trip, Steve. So I yeah, was working. That's what he claims it is. I think he was just dicking off, but that's okay. His wife needed to go see the Brown Rushmore. So that's okay. Um, you know, and, and cattle as a whole are down a little bit in futures, but that's, I, it's the summer. Everything's always like that. Everybody's holding on to everything they have just because grass is cheap right now and you can put them on for a long time. Um, the one thing that I have noticed, corn prices have been kind of stagnating and so have wheat and barley. Uh, we're getting here in Idaho, we're right in the middle of our growing season. So it's going to be interesting. Hay's down about, oh, about 25% what it was last year. I think that it'll hold at that. I think you'll see a influx around second and third crop of cost just because we're not going to get four cuts of hay this year. There's no way. Yeah, but on the other side of the flip side of the coin, Steve, is there aren't nearly the amount of animals to feed this year. So that might keep, yeah, uh, but, that might keep but 90%, the prices down a little bit. 90% of alfalfa goes to the dairy industry, and they're having a rough time right now. Milk's down probably to its lowest it's been in probably 10 years and so what usually happens they start reducing the number of cows i don't know the dairy guys have been weird right now they're not really doing that they're holding tight hoping to get more money on basis but i'm not sure they're going to get it i the problem has always been and and we're going to talk about this with importation of semen um the best way to ruin something is to make a lot of it and then release it Right. Right. Um, we're going to you're going to we're going to talk about Katsukari today. You know, geez, we were selling semen at one point in time for five thousand straw. You can import it right now for about, oh, I figured about a hundred and a nickel. And I know that there's eight hundred straws that just got brought in. There you go. Uh, so that will deflate this entire Katsukari market because it's going to be handed out like candy in a year when people are holding on to it and have all this money invested into it because very few people can hold on to it forever. Yeah. It's a discipline thing. Right. Um, but, you know, and that's, that's what's happening right now. We killed all these cows because nobody wanted to feed them in the fall. 
And now there's no cattle around. And that's going to be an interesting deal when you see regular beef go for Wagyu prices. It's, it's coming. It's getting closer and closer every day, I think. So inputs are, are, are stagnant up a little bit. Minus hay, they're down. Straw, I think, will be about $80 a bale rather than 100 this year and it, for fall pickup. But, you know, that's kind of where we're sitting right now with the market. And I don't think we're going to see a lot of change until September. And then you see the change <clears throat> up. Then you see the change up. And that's, and that's usually what it is, is by the time then everybody knows the quality of everybody's crop and then they can make a decisive figure on how it works. So, you know, that's, that's the biggest thing there. But, you know, a lot of people are, are also holding on to their money now with inflation. You know, you can't go to the grocery store and fill your cart up anymore for 100 bucks. It just doesn't happen. Not even near. You can get like three things. Not, not literally, but it feels like your grocery cart's been cut in half on the same $100. It does. Um, and and that's, that's unfortunate for a lot of people because that's, that's the driver on who buys beef is how much exp- expendable, expendable cash you've got. We have the largest beef consuming holiday coming up in the United States with the 4th of July. And from everything I've read and everything I've talked to some guys, I have some really good friends in the industry. Um, they say they figure they're down 20% on purchasing from the retail store. Yeah. Which I'm means, sure. which means the retail store is probably down 40% because they're only buy. they always buy a little extra. I don't, I don't see how, how it's going to work out for these retailers in the long run. When you were a retailer, like, people, what? people, there comes a point of resistance, right? Right. Where people said, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to pay that much for steak. I'm not even going to pay that much for hamburger. Right. And there's, and, and that's the, expensive. And the cheap hamburger. Yeah. The cheap hamburger, the problem is, isn't, isn't a quality hamburger, and, and it's expensive. Yeah. And so people start doing a lot more chicken. They start doing a little bit of pork. But what happens, like right now, where pork and chicken are running neck and neck for price increase? But it's still not as expensive as where the beef is. Yeah, and, and here's the other. So, so Lane was in retail for quite a long time. Lane, what is the biggest pushback when you start getting to this higher pricing? Like, what, what is the first thing that usually goes? People stop buying burger or steaks? First thing is steaks. And then that steak market will kind of turn into roasts. Right. Right. So they'll start buying roasts and cutting their own steaks. And, or just cooking a roast because it goes farther. Right. And then once the roast uh they can't find the bargain in the roast anymore. Um, then they start uh, and, going to the to the ground meats, and, and we're talking, and, they, and they'll turn to, and that's when they turn to pork and chicken. So, so Lane, when we talk about roasts, you're ta- you're not talking about like rib roasts. You're talking no. about rump roast and chuck roasts. That's what we're talking. Yeah. We're and, not even talking sirloin tip roasts, right? Yeah. So, so that's I wanted to clarify that because some people might go, "Oh, they're just buying buying ribeye roasts around, you know, and cutting them." No, no, we're talking a whole nother level of meat quality. Yeah. So that's that's kind of where they're what people do, and the other thing that's going to make that harder now. Back when I was doing it, women cooked. Right. Right. So they could make different things. Yeah. And there's Miss Housewife today, 
they have maybe a quarter of the cooking repertoire that their folks had. Right. 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 And you find most, you find more men cooking those type of things than women because the women just don't know how. And the men have started to, well, Traeger has really helped that out. And the right. smoker grouse, right, right. Because right. the guys start getting a hobby and getting interested and stuff. Yeah. So, but um, Mrs. Housewife today is not usually a great cook. Well, and we know, and Lane's not just saying that because and I'm he's not old. being mean. No, no. But but we know enough people, right? And we've watched the trend. Um, we've got a good friend. He he's a big time. He, he does big business in the lumber industry. And his wife barely uses the Instapot. And that's all she uses. That's it. There's no, <laughs> and he says they eat out a lot because he doesn't want to eat Instapot. So, you know, and he's, he's probably what, 50? Yeah, Four norms. Norms pushing <clears throat> 50 now. Right. So, so it's not just the younger generation. It's a few generations in there. Uh, I'm lucky that I have a hippie wife that doesn't like bad things in her food. So, we get a lot of stuff cooked at home. Sometimes oh, I don't eat it. Well, but. that's it. Your your kids get a well-rounded, nutritious diet. Right. And you go to the convenience store and still eat crap. Yep, yep. yep. That's how it works. Um, and it's the truth. I, I'm a convenience store junkie. And, and it's because of the lifestyle I live. Um, I'll be the first to tell you. I I have a... Ask Lane, if, if you ever get to meet Lane, ask him about going somewhere with me i'll ask him hey what do you want to eat and i've got a place for it he does and it's usually not low carb and it's nope. usually not diabetic friendly no and i end up eating a lot of salads yeah and lane's been doing good on his diabetes lately um like for a while there i don't think he thought he had it and then he got this arm monitor thing and he's done a lot better uh we went to twin and logan it's probably about a 300 mile round trip the other when we went and picked up embryos yeah and shit, he ate salad during lunch. I was like, well, that's your own deal, but it is what it is. I mean, he goes to Wendy's, and I was forced to eat a Wendy's salad. Yeah. I'm not sorry, but it's I, terrible. Had, I had diarrhea for three days. Yeah. That's why you don't eat salad from Wendy's. You just take the bullet, and you deal with the carbs. But, um, you know, I, the thing is, is I, I worked long enough at the U.S. Marshal's office that I, I learned that I, I learned a bad habit. I have a place for about every junk food you'd want to eat. And the problem is I found all the good places, so it's actually good. Like, it tastes good, but it is not good for you. So, and, and that's just, I know you live a life and you learn those weird things. I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm changing over a new leaf. Um, I'm leaving the federal government for sure and for final uh, after 20 some odd years of service. Um, at the end of the next month. It's kind of a weird deal. Um, I've consulted with them. I've worked for them. I've I've done a lot of stuff dealing with the government and the things they needed done for a period of time. On top of running major business and starting a a full farming operation <clears throat> with Wagyu, and it's kind of a weird deal thinking about it. You know, you spend twenty some odd years working in an industry and one day you're just done. It'll be interesting. Uh, I'll have a lot more time. I'm actually starting to break my children and my wife into a new routine. Um, I make breakfast in the morning on the days I'm home. 
I'm going to be home a lot more. So I think that my kids will get a little more structure in the morning than they've they've had in the past. Um, so Steve's military background, and he is way, way um, ship-shaped, right? You got to get things toe the line. I mean, that that's it. And, and there's a time to do things, and there's a schedule, and it yeah. has to be done the same way. Every time, the same time, same quality of work. And and his kids, when he's home, knows that, and they hip-hop right to it. Yep, even the baby, even the two-year-old. Even, even the, even she's the baby. three now. She's three yeah. now. So And and mom, she's kind of the laid-back, hippie gal and stuff. And ah, if it gets done today, it it's okay. But if we have to wait tomorrow or the next day, yeah. And then she gets That's stressed. Okay. Then she gets and stressed then she out. Gets stressed out because she's behind on, right. on this stuff. Because Steve comes home and and he'll come in the house and he'll go. I'm gonna go work at the cows. Yeah. <laughs> because he because he's he's and he's, 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 he's kind of like it's not it's worth not, the fight. It's not worth the fight. And then but he thinks, oh, it's just not that hard. Yeah. You know we. Ha- the kids do it all the time when I'm home or right. mom home. The the patients are in charge of the insane <laughs> asylum instead of the doctors. Yeah, and, and it's the truth. Um it, there's a reason I've I've got to where I am and it's because I'm very structured and I'm very detail oriented. Um I do understand though that there are small things that don't matter. Like that's, that is, that is one benefit I do have over a lot of people that have the same lifestyle as I do is that I am able to usually differentiate the difference between does this really matter or not? You do that a lot better now. I I do. When we first met, not so much. No, no, not at all. 10 years ago, you did. It was bad. It was bad. And I think some of the, that's how we compliment each other a little bit. It helps me get more on my A game. (laughs) I help him uh, look at things not yeah. quite so seriously sometimes. So that it's really good for both of us. And it is. And then the problem a lot of people have, and I and I get this question a lot, how do you have a partnership in a butcher shop? I go, well, we really don't. I just tell Lane, hey, we need to do this. And Lane goes, okay, we need to do it, but we can do it here. It's not a, it's not a, it's never an argument over who's something getting done. It's it's a discussion. Why aren't we doing this? And Lane goes, well, this is why we're not doing it. And I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And then he'll say, <laughs> well, why aren't we doing this? And I'll go, you know, I've never thought about that before. I said, let's try it. If yeah. if it doesn't work, if the technique isn't working and things, we can always go back. Well, it, we're bringing a scalloped blade in uh, soon to cut steaks with to make them more uniform. And uh, and my guys have never worked with a scalloped blade before on a saw. And Lane's a little um, worried. It, it's... I am because they're dangerous. It, it's the it's will zip your finger off so dang quick that you don't even you won't even feel it, but your fingers will be gone. Yeah. And we're gonna use the slow saw. <laughs> we're not putting it on the good saw, so that'd yeah. even be worse. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, it's gonna be interesting, and we're starting out with. Uh, our domestic elk that we cut every year. People have to realize that when we say that we're cutting elk and things, it's all domestic elk. Yep. It's USDA. It's all USDA approved elk. They have paperwork that that they are healthy and they're owned by a rancher. It's not certified. No yep. chronic wasting and yep. You know all that type of stuff. So, um, 
So we have the ability to be able to keep those elk plus do some beef and some pork beef on that the time. needs from time to time. We keep them on separate rails and keep them a rail and, apart. And, and in the reality of it, uh, according to the USDA, we could stack them right next to each other. Yeah, but because, we because they're not wild. Like everybody's got to remember, uh, you guys, you boys in Texas would appreciate it. It's all high fence, high fenced elk. They are purchased in Canada and brought in, and and that's what we do. And I know in Texas, I've got a friend down in Texas. Um, we were talking to him a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> he has now got his high fenced critters because they do water buck and things like that down there. Um, fallow deer. They've got them USDA certified now. Nice. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, I'm not sure quite how they're getting it done, but the dude goes out and shoots it, the hunter, and then the butcher staff field dress it at the, the facility. They take the animal whole because it's not a big animal. Back to the facility, it gets processed there. And then uh, he said he gets about a 35% kick out. So 35% of the animals cannot be certified with USDA. Um. But the rest have, have passed quality inspection somehow. And then he just probably sells them to other <clears throat> ranches, right? Um, so what he does is, is he cuts them up and then sells them to a catering company that caters for his ranch and six others in the local area. Mm-hmm. So they can have water buck, they can have fallow deer steaks, they can you, you can you can have the things that you want. I see. It's kind of an interesting theory. It'd never work here. Never. Um yeah, we'd have like a hundred percent fill rate. <laughs> I will tell you, elk are just so big. I don't know how you'd bring them down whole. Yeah. Like you're talking about a small cow. Yeah. Um. You know, but but that's the that's the reality of it. Um. You know, I, I was talking to Lane. I've been talking to Lane about these scallop blades for for almost a year now because I've seen them and I've seen them being used. And we finally got some for the saw, and we're getting some in, and we're gonna try it, and only because it makes a more uniform deal. That's it. And, and that's one thing with my, some people call it anal retentiveness. Um, I really do not like packages that aren't pretty. Lane doesn't like them. No. So. In fact, that we, when we get back to the shop, you know, we're going to go back to packaging 101 again, remedial packaging, because I've noticed some of the packages aren't what I want and what I expect. And the hard part was with employees is we're always having to do training, retraining, training, retraining, because they get complacent. And it's the same for employees. It isn't like yep. we're, we've got a... Yeah, we're not, we're not we're running not, through we're, them. We're not running through them. It isn't a high turnover. In fact, very low t- turnover. It's complacency. We, ha- and we haven't had any turnover in a year. If you want to count Michaela... But she kind of didn't do anything anyway, and she wanted to go up to the college town. Yeah. Really, we haven't had any turnover in a year. That's probably true. You know, and she told us last August she was leaving after elk season. That's true. So, you know, really, we're coming up on August. We haven't had a change in staff in a year. That's true. You know, yeah, one of our guys went from t- from part-time work to full-time work, but he was there. Yep. You know, and that's something that I'm I'm actually pretty happy with is we our turnover rates so low i talked to a lot of other guys in our area and their turnover rates retarded you know they're losing people every couple months well look how many people john's ran through he's down to just his kids now yeah you know and that's that's the problem good helps hard to find hard and 
We have and that's, and that and, and to <clears throat> tell you the truth, that's one reason, and Steve will tell you why he doesn't come into the shop very often. Right. Because we would end up having an attrition rate. Um, Probably a management A management attrition rate. Yeah. It's that. Yeah. Be- because I require, I'm, I'm used to dealing with high, high pace professionals. Mm-hmm. And they understand that I'm high pace, they're high pace. And we, I don't, I can deal with them a lot differently than I can an employee at the butcher shop. I make Lane deal with all the employees. If there's a problem, I usually won't address it. I'll be like, Lane, you need to deal with this. Because for me, I go instantly to a different mode and these guys are a little soft. And, and sometimes we say, okay, we, we can address that, but be aware we have this, that, and the other to look at. And Steve said, yeah. uh, not sure I address it how you seem, how yeah. you, how it needs to be. And uh, I'll just leave that to you. Because he knows he would go on a harder, a harder regimen. Yeah. And we wouldn't keep the people that we've got. No, no. And, and it's and not like we're, we're lax. It's just they re- the people that we They have, require right? a different... Le style of management yeah. than they need I, a little more hands on and hand holding. Yeah. They really do. They yeah. they're like that little kid in school that ate too much glue. Um, <laughs> they need it. They they really do. They need that. They still eat glue. They still eat glue. But <laughs> your guys, pro- I've seen them lick things that they shouldn't. So I'm not even going to say anything about. It. The problem is 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 and it takes two people. Like it takes really in a butcher shop. I don't think Lane would be successful in a butcher shop by himself because he doesn't have the structured management to deal with the big things, the behind the scene things, the things like when people stiff him on money. Right? Well, I, I have, well, I have a very good collection guy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and he's unwilling to let things go. And, uh, and it, we're, we're a hundred percent on collections. It took a while on the one. It did, but I got it. You got it. <laughs> but but that, that that's the difference, right? Um, and then Lane would get taken advantage of, I think, a little more than he does. And then he'd make me fix it. <clears throat> right, right. Um, but but that's okay. Like the, yeah. the needs to have that in a in a decent partnership and able to be able to do things. Um, and that's how it works. It's pretty damn simple. Uh, most of you guys get in bed with people that are an investor that are probably a little as harsh as I am, but you are not capable of softening the, the edges and me and Lingo do shit all the time together. So he helps me with the cows. We go fishing a couple times a year. Like, like it's not like we just hang out at work, but it's, it's, it's also a hangout at home type deal. He comes to all the kids' events and makes sure I get a birthday present. That's always pretty cool. I, I found it again. He brought, he actually finally dropped it off at my house. I left it at his house and then I'd go to wear it. And then I'd be pissed because I didn't have it. And then now it's at my house. So um, I wear it all the time and my kids like scars. So it works out. Okay. So, but, but that's the thing is if you're not in a, if you're in a partnership and it's not a family style, you're going to fail. I'll tell you right now, there's no way to do it. I've watched it over and over again and it just fails. Um, so that, that's kind of how it works. So Lane, how was your, how was your vacation of doom? Well, my, um, research project went pretty good. Um, my wife and I, it's always been on her bucket list. She wanted to go to South Dakota, see Mount Rushmore, and 
And uh, we just never were able to, to get there when the kids were small. And so we had some downtime at the shop, and I just told her, I said, next week, let's do this. And she said, I can probably do that. So she closed her shop and uh, for the week, and we went from here in Idaho Falls, and we went north up to Montana. We went through Island Park and the, the Steve calls it the Upper Valley. Mm-hmm. That's and where the that's that's where the good folks live in Idaho. Just so you know, um, there's a two hundred and two hundred no two hundred and thirty residents. Okay, the Upper Valley is is the top of the world. Um, it's right up against Yellowstone. Actually, some of Yellowstone falls into the Upper Valley onto the Idaho side. We have Henry's Lake, uh, the number three trout lake in the nation. We have the Henry's Fork, the number two. Blue Ribbon Trout Stream in the nation. They also have part of the South Fork. We have this. I was getting there. We have the South Fork, which is the number one Blue Ribbon Stream in the nation. And then you get to a place called Rigby. And in between Rigby and Rexburg, there's a river called the Snake River. It's the South Fork breaks up. And that's where the Flatlanders live. Anything south of that. And then you're down on the desert. So you go from the mountain to the desert. You know, experts are kind of flatlandish. Yeah, it's becoming more and more. But but we still count them because we have to. Okay. Yeah, they've been part of the Upper Valley their whole existence and, you know, whatever. Uh, as more Californians move in, it's a college town. It's like 90% college students now. Um, the church has a school there. And they run three tracks. There's actually more students than community members. That live in Rexburg. It's actually the biggest college in Idaho with the three tracks. It is. It is the largest college in Idaho. Plus their plus their online school is mm-hmm. huge, right? So the Mormons do a very good job of making um, cheap school with high value of education. They're really good at it. That's something that they've perfected over the years. And they make sure that their people have an opportunity to go to a school at a reduced rate. I heard last time it's 1500 a semester, not counting housing. So that's that's pretty cheap in this world. That's pretty. That's way cheap. It, it is subsidized by the church. The church subsidizes this for the members to make it cheap and affordable for them to have an education. And the non-member tuition is twenty one fifty, which is very. Reasonable. It is also subsidized by the church. They yeah. do it because they feel like if you're a non-member going there, and you're willing to meet the criteria in which it takes to get there, that they're going to help you out too. It's not solely based on being a member of the church. Ninety eight percent of the students are members, though. And they, have, and they have a fairly large foreign group now, I hear. I was talking to Sean and Kevin the other day about it, and uh, Kevin's in charge of the singles ward for the uh, immigrant, not immigrant, what do they call it, exchange students, international exchange. Um, and he said that he has a ward of about 350 now, all from different countries all over the world, and they all go to, they're all members, uh, and they come to church, so... That'd be a fun word to go to, wouldn't it? He says it's really hard because um, some of them, when they first get here, they have to take English for a couple of years. And some of them have good English, depending on where they're from. And then some of them speak a third world language that he thinks is English. (laughs) (laughs) 
Pidgin English. Yeah, it's wild. He says it's go. wild, but it'd be a great word, right? Yeah. yeah. Think about the diversity and the cool Absolutely. things you learn. And for him, so for those I, who don't know, a bishop is the person in charge of the church. He'd be like the father or the preacher, or he's in charge of the whole group of people. The congregation. Yep, the congregation. That he's in yep. head of, yeah. Yeah, and that's, and that's kind of an interesting deal in itself. But so we do let them be part of the upper valley, but the flatlanders are kind of odd. They live down where you can't see the Tetons and I, it's hard living down with the flatlanders. Uh, I've been doing it now for 10 years and I have to go to the upper valley once a week. If Lane, Lane I think realizes that cause he'll call me and I'll be up hanging out with Sean or something like that up there because I need my Teton time is what I call it. Yeah, I'm. I'm kind of an adopted Highlander. Yeah, yeah. Lane gets to be with the Highlanders now. We call it. We call them. We call us the Mountain Folk. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so we go up through Island Park, and then we go over to Ennis, and took the road from Ennis over close to Butte. That's on the western side of the state, and then we went all the way from Butte to Billings, which is kind of central Montana, and then we went to a little town called Broadus, which is the southwest or southeast quarter of Montana before we went down into Wyoming, down around Devil's Tower, and then over to South Dakota. And it was really interesting because we have had a fairly wet spring. I mean, most places had a pretty wet, deep winter with snow and so all that grassland all that prairie all the ranches i mean it was belly deep to a horse grass green grass wonderful pasture and i saw more animals in the upper valley in island park on land that steve leases than I saw in Montana, Wyoming, or South Dakota. See, and that's scary to me because for years, um, Montana, the Dakotas, and Idaho, uh, we produce some of the best grass in the nation. We have people lease ground from us that come in from the south, everywhere. Our, our, our weaning weights are usually some of the highest in the nation because of the grass. And there's usually as many cows out there um, as fleas on a dog and I, to not see any scares me. I kid you not, Steve. I don't think we saw 200 head of uh, cattle outside of Idaho. And we saw more sheep and we saw beef and we saw more antelope than we saw anything. See, and that's hard. Like, that's not a good thing um, for everyone out there. The problem is, is without the Pacific Northwest, and it's not necessarily the Pacific Northwest, it's the Idaho, Montana, Oregon, um, Eastern Washington, um, Wyoming, and North, both the Dakotas. Northern Nevada, a little bit in Utah, yeah, right? Right. Um, that's where a lot of your... That's where a lot of your cattle come from that go to Nebraska. Because we, we usually, a lot of people don't feed around here because winters are so bad. So they ship everything down to Nebraska to go in the feedlot. And the scary thing to me is, is when you see that few of numbers, that tells me that next year 
this fall, cattle prices are going to be wild for just regular cattle. Yeah. So hold on to your seats. And, and we talked about that in depth on several of these podcasts. When the, the number of cattle decrease as much as we decrease the herd, and it takes uh, four years to get back if you're just rebuilding and not selling much to where you were before you dumped everything. Um, this is not going to be a short-term fix if there's any fix at all right now, Steve. Right, and that's the scary part. It's going to take you three to five years um, just to get break-even, just to get caught up with cows. That's not having enough calves to give the feedlot. That's just you retaining heifers to build your herd back up. And that's what a lot of folks don't understand. I bet you by the end of the year, by around Christmas time, we're going to see regular beef prices as high as some of the Wagyu we sold early on. I would, Or, or our good deal sales when we have some good friends and clients. I bet you per pound, we're going to be close to the damn same thing. And that's, and that's scary wild. to me. And that's, that's scary wild. to me. Yeah. Right? So anyway, but that was that was kind of the research part of the project. We had a great time. It's fun to see some friends, some family. It was fun to go to places like Devil's Tower. Um, what a magnificent uh, spot of nature that is. Uh, it's great to go see the Crazy Horse Memorial and the... Western Indian, the National Western Indian Museum there, and uh, spent some time there. We went over to Mount Rushmore and spent some time there. Had got off my diabetes diet, and it's the first time I've had like a nice bowl of ice cream in like two years. And ask him how bad it was. Oh, it, it might have <laughs> tasted good. Yeah, it was miserable for three days, but you know. Speaking of your diabetes diet, how close to 200 are you? I'm within 12 pounds. So here's the deal. When I first started, when Lane showed up at my house wanting to go fishing 10 years ago, um, I'm guessing he was around three, three bills. No, I was, I had started losing weight right before that. Yeah. So I was probably 260 when I saw you. Yeah. So he's lost all the, but he gained a little bit in there, lost a little bit, gained a little bit. And when he finally got serious, he's, he's lost all this weight in the last couple of years. And I guarantee he's feeling better. Yeah, I'm feeling better. Even, so here's the deal. We know a lot of people. It's just part of who I am. I know a ton of people. Lane is probably one of the most fit 60-plus-year-olds. Do you want to tell him how old you are, Lane? I'm 67. He's one of the most fit 67-year-olds, to be 68 in December, that I, I am around. He, if I want to go fishing and I say, Lane, grab your shit, we're going fly fishing, he can grab his stuff, and I don't have to worry about him drowning in the river. I don't have to worry about him falling in the water. Like He's a little off balance, and I think that comes with age, but I, we don't have to worry about taking him places. He can go hike around Devil's Tower. He can go do what he needs to do. Hell, his hair is mostly not gray. Uh, but it, it's due to being active and taking care of himself over the years. And a lot of people, I think, in this industry need to learn that because I, I'm around a lot of ranch guys, and there's a lot that come to us um, that we butcher their animals for that are, what, 60 and can't get out of the truck? Yeah. Like, come on. Well... 
Your dad is a oh, good prime example, example, right? Prime example. He has basically the same kind of problems I have. He's type 2 diabetic. <clears throat> um, and, and you're talking about a guy, too, who tightened an industry. Yeah. You know, Milo Mann ran the state prison system for 20 years. Then he consulted back to the feds for, for a period of time. And the dude is in the prison industry. He is the guy people call when there's a problem to fix problems. Yet he can't fix the smallest problem in his life, and that's dealing with his diabetes. And what, your dad's what, 55, 58, somewhere in there? So um, he is 55. He'll be 56 in August. And you'd think he was pushing 75 to 80. Yep. And it's just, you know, and, and that's the thing. He's sedimentary. He doesn't watch his weight very well. He doesn't. Oh no! Control no, he's 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 three bills no. plus, dude. I bet you on a, on a light day he's three twenty five. Yeah, but he's you know he isn't you know six eight. No, he's or five six, five eight like me. He's like six three. Yeah, yeah, and but but still three hundred and twenty pounds is too much. It is. And he didn't take care of his diabetes and refused to think that he had it, and and he's got neuropathy, so he's got other problems because of that. About lost his foot twice. Yep, and and that's the problem. You got to take care of yourself, and in this industry, it's hard to take care of yourself sometimes because there's a lot of stress. I remember watching my granddad and watching, you know, watching how they dealt with stress, and they don't deal with it, and then they eat. Yeah, and then one of the and one of the advantages I have with Steve, so. Um, we have a few we have a few off days right now. It's been a little slow because <laughs> there's not a lot of cattle around. And so uh so we we've uh have some days during the week where we don't have to go into the shop because we don't have anything to to cut right now. And uh so, but we've prepared for it and things, but so And I'm gone. Yeah, a lot. And, and like everybody's gone. gotta remember this. I am gone sometimes six days a week. Mostly I try to be home two days a week. So he go. so usually by eight in the morning, probably nine o'clock at the latest, I get this phone call. What you, what you doing? And I'll tell him what I'm doing. What do you got planned for today? What else do you have planned for the day? And then if I don't have enough planned in my day, he says, I need you to do this and this and this for me. That'll help me a lot. Yeah. And I'll say, okay, I, I can probably get that done. And so he makes sure that I'm active through the day. And he's not sitting inside watching TV. That I'm active during yep. the day. Well, Lane, a couple of years ago, I was talking to you and your wife. And what was the one thing that I told you that, that the national media has done to the working man? It was involving football. Oh, do you yeah. remember that conversation? Yeah, that it, football is kind of a waste of time, and and that it's um, it's got people used to sitting down leisurely and not doing anything for hours at a time, and and it gave them a that. group of people to be part of to do it with. Yeah, you know, um, I, I have a really hard time with that because I see a lot of older people that could have a good life in their older years that are living through misery because of the decisions they made not to be active. The butcher shop's been a great place for Lane. Oh, it has. It has. It gives him a place to be, people to take care of, 
all those things. And, and it gives him something to do every day. And just like the quilt shop for my wife, it's been yep. a good thing for her. Gives her a place to be around beautiful things and making stuff and around people. And, um, yeah, retiring to nothing is retiring to an early grave, I think. I, and I, I told him that from day one. Yeah. Uh, you can only go fishing so much, and, and that's the reality of it. So we're going to move on to our first question. So, Lane, what was the first question that we, we were presented with? I think it was, why is Katsukari semen and MasterChef semen so expensive? Exactly. That is the question. Okay, so I will break this down for everyone. So let's, I've broke this into three sections and Lane's going to read them to me so that I don't miss them. So, so the first one is rarity. No, what makes semen? Oh, so, so what makes, what makes the semen worth the dollar value that people are paying? So to start off, let's talk about the rarity of this semen. MasterChef is a weird deal. MasterChef never had much imported and most of the semen that was actually collected because they didn't think he was going to die an early death was sent to the Philippines to a dairy that's unexportable. So there's probably 100 straws floating around left in the U.S. There's probably 100, 150 straws floating around in Australia, but they're not exportable to the United States. So when people go, hey, I want some MasterChef semen, you're going to pay five to $20,000 depending on who has it and what they're willing to let it go for. It's just the, it's just the truth of it. Because of the, rare, the, the rarity. rarity of it. Now, there's, another, there's two other things that go into this. You have the rarity, and then you have what lane? Accessibility. Right. So that's what I'm talking about. Willing to let go. Stuff that comes to our place, there is so few times that we sell semen that we use in our, in our program. It's few and far between. It's usually to someone who starts listing numbers, and I'm like, fine, I'll take it for that. That's the reality of it. Um, there's a lot of semen out there that, that gets handed around, traded around. I do not buy multiple ownership semen. I, I, I will buy single ownership semen uh, sold from the owner to one person. But if it's been in two or three tanks, I don't want it because it's no good. I guarantee there's a problem with it, with the quality, because it's been not handled appropriately sometime during the transfers. So I just don't buy it. And then the last part is genetic value. With MasterChef, you get Yume, you get all the size, growth, length you ever want. That's why it's expensive. And in my opinion, I actually do it differently. When I look at things, I look at what's the genetic value. Then I go to what's the rarity. Genetic value to me is the most important because I have to sell a product at the end. Right. And so, like we've t- talked about time and time again, we look at the dams and see what maternal traits that they're going to bring to And what we need animal. in the herd. And then we'll see what she has, and then we'll selectively match it with a sire that we think is going to give us better than we have. Right. That's always the goal, to produce calves better than what we have today. And, and that's where a lot of people are getting off on this. So you're buying this $5,000 straw master chef semen and you're putting it over a cow that shouldn't have it over it. And I've seen some train wrecks already. There's some master chef calves out there that, that are coming that I know that have been done through embryo transfer that are going to be a train wreck. We had one train wreck. Well, I've had a train wreck. Yeah. We've had multiple train wrecks over the years. Two with master chef. Yep. Right? Yep. And, and it is what it is. And we will not do that combination ever again. Ever again. And we've had. 
a lot of success. Right, right. And, and, once, and once we loaded him up into the D4 cow, we've had great success on those cows. Exactly. And we're not going to stop using him on her because they work. And we'll probably try some on Amelia. Um, we can't because it's, he's a, she's a master chef daughter. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be oh, too, line. too, too much line breeding for me. I may breed her to a full brother, but I, yeah, line breeding that, that close. I don't like Yeah, brother, sister I can deal with, but father, daughter, I, I, I draw the line sometimes. There you go. So, so Katsukari, here's the deal with Katsukari. There is a shit ton of semen floating around Australia. I know there's 400 straws that got brought in not too long ago, last week. Okay. I know there's another 250 straws being brought in around the 4th of July. Okay. So I what, also know... What has that been going for? So I sold what? some early in the year for 5K a straw. Okay. At that time, there was probably less than 80 straws in the country. Okay. So let's do the math, folks. When we were selling it earlier in the year for 5K, there were less than 80 straws. Now I know for sure confirmed purchasing. So, and, and people are like, well, how do you know? Well, I'll let you in on a little secret. I have more contact inside the USDA than most people ever wish they had. I know if I, if I want to know what's being imported, I have a few phone, a few friends. I'll make a few phone calls and the head of importation will let me know what's being brought in the country because guess what? I've earned that right because I know everyone and I have done favors for them. So in the next, between now and August, you're going to see almost 800 straws, a hundred times the amount being brought in this country. The original, when they originally brought some in around with MasterChef, they brought 260 straws-ish, give or take. I've talked to three or four guys that were part of that, and they said there's about 240 to 280 straws brought in. We're bringing more straws in now than they did on the original import, which means the price is going to go down. And here's what the deal is. Everybody's like, oh, well, they'll hold on to them. You'll, you have that whole, can you get a hold of them? I got something to tell you guys. So back in the day when, when this was brought in, they paid like $60 a straw to import it. So I was talking to the guys at Mazda and the guys at Delta and the guys, you know, that had the semen in Australia that still was exportable. And they told me their average price was 500 a straw. Which means by the time you import them, you're going to be about 650 to $700. Because I guarantee they used an import agent. They, didn't, they weren't their own import agent. They, they went through, well, I know it because I've seen the paperwork, but I know where it's going so it's not a big, like, like they're in at 700 bucks. It's expensive. That's an expensive import. When we imported semen earlier in the year, because I needed some embryos that I finally found in Australia, uh, our import cost was $1,140 to import for the shipping. Another $1,140, give or take, for, for import, the actual importing. And we do all of our importation. We don't, we don't have Hawkeye do it. We don't. We do it all. I have my own import license. And the, the big thing is about that is that we can reduce our costs. So when we, we, we snagged some Katsukari semen while we were bringing stuff in because I, I wanted to make sure I had enough of it because I was down to like 10 or so straws. And we gave $125 a straw 
and we bought we bought from a few places so we have a full tank coming like we usually do every three to four years we have a full tank of embryos and semen so our import cost per straw was somewhere around 25 to 30 dollars total cost of import because we brought it we brought the amount we brought in um and and that's the the reality of the situation right now so when you bring that much semen in supply and demand dictates what lane the cost uh or the price the selling price selling price the buying price correct so when these people thought they were being sly about it and they're gonna bring all the semen in and they're gonna resell it for so much money if you wait a year they're going to be sitting on this inventory that they've got hundreds of thousands, well, probably 50 grand tied into. And most people are not patient. And so they're going to start selling. And, and the reason I say less market, right. They're going to sell right. it for less than they paid for it at some point. Cause they want to get some money back. Here's the deal guys. So my average import from Australia, when we bring stuff in every three years runs between 80 and a hundred thousand dollars. That's between us buying the stuff and the import cost. We're about a hundred grand when we do it. A lot of people that have just been doing it lately are doing it for under 10 grand or 15 grand. So their cost per importation is a lot and it's not difficult. Importation is not difficult guys. A lot of times the, the Australian breeders, you just got to get a hold of them and they already know the system. So when we talk Katsukari, Katsukari semen, I bet you will go down to $150, $200 a straw from 5000 because people over-inundated the market. So instead of being wise about things and going, hey, you know, they're making a lot of money on it. Let's import a modest amount. People went out and bought all they could get their hands on and then imported it. Flooded the market. Flooded the market. And they're going to they're gonna try to slowly release it. And then when they realize that they can't slowly release it, because they're going to get some people, they're going to get some people that are like, oh, we need it now, and we're going to pay $1,200 a straw. So here's the other thing that scares me. I know a lot of embryologists. Sean knows a lot of embryologists. And every embryologist I've talked to that's dealt with Katsukari semen, they said that there are some bad semen out there and there's some really good. So unless you, you as an importation person or as a buyer know the good straws from the bad, you could be buying semen that's low semen count. I've even talked to the boys in Australia. And they said there are some, some collections of Katsukari that are better than others. You know, so I went back and I literally went through and found the cane, the cane selections that I wanted and that's what I purchased. So you're, you're really taking a risk. I know a lot of guys who have got cards, Kari semen, they brought in a bunch of oocytes and they had a train wreck. You know, I was talking to our, to the guy who does our IVF for us lane. Yeah. And he said the same thing. He said that he has done a lot of Katsukari over the years and it's all been terrible. So you, you guys need to remember we're going back to quality, right? We're going back to, is it a quality? It might, it might be, it used to be rare. It used to be rare. Now it's no longer rare. So explain again how they can make sure they're getting a better quality than one of the... Learn. Learn which cane codes. Talk to people. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to babysit people for them. I've you said something about what codes? King codes. So, so each collection has its own code. 
Okay. Every time the bull was collected and the semen was put into straws, it has its own code. Okay. So you go back to those codes and you figure out which ones are the good ones, which ones are the bad ones, and you only buy the good codes. Okay. It's like when your kid so used there'd be there'd be data on each of the codes. So as long as yep, you need to call. No, 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 no. Okay. You need to call and talk to the people that have it and that I have used see. it. Okay. There you go. And, and I tell you right now, I've spent enough hours on the phone to Australia that these boys are more than willing to help people. But you have to be willing to make the effort to call and get a hold of them. I usually email them and have them call me at their convenience and let them know where I live so that they don't call me at two in the morning. Right? But, but we need to do our homework, people, because there's a lot of semen out there that's been purchased over the last couple of years. I know, I know that, that a lot of semen is just not as good as other semen. Why do you think a lot of breeders uh, stack sires sometimes? put two sires into one collection because they know that one of them, either one of the, one or the other of the semen isn't as good as it should be. So, you know, that's the big one right there. And the scary thing to me is, is this is a, an ongoing problem. And, and I, I feel bad about it, but you guys are purchasing stuff and not doing your homework. So that's, that's on you. I hate to say it that way, but it is. Uh, I research things probably farther than I should, um, but I'm not just going to tell everybody which ones they are either. Uh, that's proprietary for us. Exactly. And if people want to pay for some information on it, I, I might think about it, but, uh, there is some things we have to keep. Well, at least we gave them, so, gave them some place to go, place to go Yep. and the start of their own research. Right. And, uh, most people probably are saying kind of like what, okay, Said this, this says, what does this mean? Boom, that's how you do it. Right. Okay. Now, if they want to spend the money and do the research and do the stuff that they need to do to that's their deal. ensure that's their deal. <laughs> right. Or when you buy it, make sure that they, you have a semen guarantee on it. If you buy it from someone, make sure it has a semen guarantee, have it checked. Then if it's no good, it's back on them and they give you your money back. And we did that once before. I have done that multiple times before. Yep. Um, that is actually part of all semen purchasing we do anymore. There is a buy, you know, we have to be able to verify that the semen is quality and we use our own lab. Um, we have our own guy do it because I want to make sure that when we bring stuff in, that it is high quality. And if it's no good, we ship it back. We get our money back or they, they make it right with the correct semen. That, that's just how we do it. Um, what do we got next, Lane? Next thing you said, Want to go through what black sires do you use? Oh, sweet. So we had a question that I talk a lot about red sires, and I do. So I do because the reds, reds are just different. Um, they're, a lot, they're a lot easier once you understand how things work and actually kill animals. You can really make some nice carcasses and animals once you know that. The blacks, on the other hand, they're all over the damn board. <laughs> um, so... A lot of times people ask this. I haven't kind of, always kind of skirted the question. So this is how I do it. Right, wrong, or indifferent. So I have a very strong Sanjiro cow herd on the bottom, on the dam side. Um, and, and they go back to a lot of different places. Um, I've got some Fukio lines. Um, I've got some lines that go back to Suzatani. I've got a few lines that go back uh, to 147. Um, 
And that's kind of how we've built our black herd. Uh, I, in, I purchased, inherited a herd, my black herd. It wasn't my first love and want to go into, but when Eldon, uh, when his wife was letting stuff go, I decided to purchase the good stuff because she asked me to. <laughs> so that, that they can come down and see them when they want. And, and that was important for me. So we purchased the best animals that, that they had, and a lot of them were seven, six, seven T daughters. And um, that's kind of how we've started. So the sires I really like using are like Yasufuku Jr., Everybody knows Yasufuku Jr. Uh, he produces great marbling, great Tajima bull. The problem with him is he does reduce your size a little bit. Um, and for us, we like a bigger sized cow because our clients expect it. We also sell a lot to the F1 industry. Uh, so we need a bull that they can get behind and say, yeah, that's a pretty stable bull. We can see that he's going to be useful. Um, and with our black bulls are a little different. Our red, our red bulls start at 8,000 and we sell them from eight to 12. A lot of times, um, our black bulls, we sell for five to 10. They're just a little less money. Uh, snake river farms usually sweeps in and steals all of the best ones, um, for their F1 programs. So we have a built-in buyer and it works good for us. Um, from there, I like using Sugar Sugatani because I know I'm going to get a lot of size and a lot of ribeye size and a lot of really cool um, marbling sets. Uh, bringing in the Suzatanis are always cool, but I do use him a little less than, than um, say, the Yasufuku Juniors. And, and with 767T, her best calf that she ever produced was a Yasufuku Junior daughter, or, or son, sorry. Um, and they've got data both on him here and in Australia. So the data was, and I'm not a data guy. I think that the EBVs and EPDs, they have a long ways to go before they're a good product. Um, but uh, if you're a product person, that's, that's her best calf according to the product. The best meat calves we've ever had come out of her and uh, Sanjiro. Lion breeding Sanjiro in. Um, we use Sanjiro quite a bit. Uh, we bought a lot of semen when it was cheaper, uh, along with Shugatani and Yasufuku Jr. And, and we use it a lot. Uh, another sire that I've rallied behind is Ido Shuganami, 148. Uh, Ido Shuganami brings me a ton of power in the forefront. So if I have a cow that's starting to steep up in her brisket, I like using him. He is a smaller bull. He does kill my size a little bit, but his sons marble so well that it's really worth our time having them in the herd. It gives us a great brisket, right? Oh my goodness. The briskets on those 148s have been just phenomenal. And here's the other thing. So a lot of these Wagyu, a lot of people don't know this because they're not cutting them up. Um, some Wagyu sires will give you a small brisket that's so marbled that it's almost not worth having. And others will give you a meaty brisket with a ton of marbling that people recognize and want. And, and we've ran into that having the butcher shop. Um, sometimes these briskets are so fatty that I, I've never got a complaint yet, but I don't know how we haven't. Because I've cooked a couple. Yep. And it's not what I would consider a good quality brisket. So, guys, for just for an just for a add-on on that on the briskets, what we started to do is tell people to uh, have us prepare for them bone in. Yep. Where we take the bone and we leave cut, the ribs. We, we cut it off. We leave the ribs, and we tie it back on to the brisket, and cook it that way. And it's been a home run for people. 
Well, and, and because Wagyu is so fatty, sometimes when you cook a brisket, it's, it's the cascade of fat is too much. Um, and it actually affects the smoke whirl. Um, so by putting that rib plate on there, you're, you're creating a barrier to keep your flat from overcooking. And it gives that, that broke down tallow a place to go and sit so that it permeates back up through your brisket. Yeah, it's just a home run. But anyway, get back to your conversation. Yeah, um, so we use some 146. Um, I don't use a lot of 146 because I've never found a lot of good semen. Uh, we're not IVF people. We're a conventional flush herd. We do use IVF when we need to. And I feel like with 146, you have to use IVF, but you're going to get a lot of marbling. The problem I have is, is the quality of the semen has never been great. And even the embryologists I've talked to all over the country, they say the same thing. I don't know if the collection, when the collections were done, that the bull just wasn't as potent or, or what, but it's just not good quality semen. And sometimes it happens. Sometimes bulls do not make it through the freeze. And that's the problem. Uh, you can do everything right and still not get good semen. That's just a an odd one there. Uh, but 146 has has a good propensity for marbling. The issue is, though, is the quality of the semen. I, I would also tell you that he's going to shrink your size a little bit, so make sure you put him on a good cow with a good frame. That's, that's super important with him. The one thing that I will tell you, 146 is going to cost you far more than 148, and 148 is going to give you way more power. He's going to, he's a, I'm not going to say he's a better bull, but he's going to give you better attributes in your meat program. So depending on how you're going to want to do that. Uh, another sire that we didn't list out that I use uh, off and on is TF813. He's a Kimifuku 3 son. Um, I, I, I don't know if I love it. Uh, we've killed one. I've got a heifer. And I've got some more that we've put in. And, and we'll see. Um, he's new to our herd. People, you know, Lone Mountain Love him, say he's the best marbling of their stuff. Uh, we may have killed that steer a touch early. I, I'm not going to say that it wasn't our fault, but we'll do a better job feeding next time at a longer eight um, and then check it out. And that's gonna that's the big one. Uh, TF813 is a good sire. Don't get me wrong, but we, we may have been the problem with the one that we killed. Not, not the actual breeding. But I do like the structure. I have a female on top of 767T. That is, she's three, maybe four now, and she's a beautiful cow. Um, she will take her into collection this fall, and, and that's what we'll do with her. But she, it's just a different breeding, right? You start playing that. TF813 is an Ido Shuganami son. Uh, like you can see, we're starting to go to second generations. I do have... 148 in the tank and we use him quite a bit but every once in a while i like to step out and see what his sons will do for us um oh so one of the big things that a lot of people don't know is is i am a huge 005 sugafuku fan um both of our herd bulls right now are sugafuku sons one on 767t one on anita Shuganami daughter and they've given us beautiful calves. They're monsters of bulls. For the black breed, they are monsters. And even the Angus boys, when they see them out in the pasture, will drive by and say, hey, I, I didn't think Wagyu could look like that. I really like Sugafuku. And the benefit of Sugafuku, and he's given us some really cool stuff. Um, Sugafuku, our two herd bulls, are JD. He's a, seven, a, a 005 Sugafuku by uh, Ido Shuganami 140, uh, 148 daughter that came from Low Mountain. Um, 
he's been a great bull. Easy to deal with, easy temper, and big framed, big bodied, great feet. The other herd bull is is the Jabberwocky, which is a seven six seven T on top of again um, 005. So we used two of his sons. We've been very happy with them. Um, they're getting a little older. Uh, I think we're eight and ten or eight and nine. JD's eight. Um, and the Jabberwocky is, he's got to be nine or 10 now. I'll have to look back in his, in his paperwork. But they breed every year. They've held up. They've done a good job. We've actually sold uh, 16C, the Jabberwocky, on to a dairy. Uh, I don't know how he's doing. They told me that he's still alive and still walking around and breeding cows. So I, he's holding up on the concrete. I didn't, I didn't know with his age if he was going to hold up on that concrete or not. Genesis. Ooh, Lane, good catch. So if I want to breed a big, thick, long, marbling bull calf, I go in my tank and I pull out Genesis. So Eldon created Genesis. Um, Jeez, it's been a while back. I couldn't tell you how long ago. Um, And then he landed, Genesis landed down at UKB. And Genesis is just a powerhouse of an 002 son. 002 is not known for marbling. He's known for bringing big size to your program. So by, by matching him up on, on the dam side um, with 767T, they've brought out a huge rib-eyed, huge loin-length uh, son called Genesis. And he has been phenomenal. Uh, last year... Uh, three quarters of the bull calves we killed or steers we killed were Genesis sons. And they are, they were just beautiful. They were, they were everything we wanted. Long, lean, you know, long, not lean. Everything worked with them. They cut well at the butcher shop. They were big though. What was our average last year? What? 1100 pound hanging weight, 1200 pound hanging weight, something like that. So we got all of the size mass and everything else we needed, but he marbled. And that's hard to find. It's hard to find that perfect combination, and he passes it on. That's the coolest part for me is he passed it on so well. I think that um, one of the things people don't think about is where are these bulls going? And not only do they go to the meat market, but they need to go to the F1 market, and, and that's where most of them land. And that's, that's important for those guys. They don't want to be losing a bunch of pounds when they wean. They want to be on par where they need to be. And, and by using these bigger, longer, and marbling bulls, you're, you're, get, you're generating that. So, Lane, here's, here's a question for you. Quick one. Uh, we're going to go back to just Wagyu in general. So the Red Blacks have been my favorite. You know that. Yeah, they've done a real good job for us. And um, the Blacks are they're there, and the Reds are there. So we, we have all three. Correct. What, what did our good friend from montana who has been buying bulls from a lot of other people and having no cattle really grade well what did he say when we were over when he was over last time picking up bulls he uh he's absolutely ecstatic with what our bulls brought to his to his program his program and he's been our number one Semen salesman. Yeah. Out there. And, and, and he's an F1 buyer too. Yeah. Right? 
And then and then Wally's been putting semen our semen on his shorthorns for years in Montana. Right. With great results. Oh, you were talking about George. Mm-hmm. Oh, George, yeah. He's he just uh He was so happy to be here. He just he's one of the most fun person to talk to I've ever talked to in my life. But here's here's the deal. Um I will tell you right now, he has had a train wreck with other people and other bulls. Because they don't have their breeding right. They're just breeding shit together and then selling it. And then poor people that buy it aren't getting the outcome that they desire. You know, for, for me, you have to have that outcome. That outcome is, is who makes you as a breeder. You can go on Facebook and look how many mean things are said about whoever. And the problem usually is, is the mean things are usually said about people throwing shit. Yeah. You know, I, I put up a very simple post a couple yesterday, two days ago to preface this, to start this whole conversation on the semen value. And the question was, is why is Katsakari semen so expensive right now? And then I get everybody under the sun. Well, this and this and this and this. Well, what you guys didn't realize is that there's, there's 800 straws that are coming to the country in less in the next three months. Like I, I prefaced it to see the trolls start throwing shit. And my favorite one is when, when one of the other breeders in Idaho puts up what we sold semen for earlier in the year. That is my favorite thing is when that happens. Right? So here's the deal. Yeah. We sold semen for five grand a straw. It is what it is. I didn't want to get rid of it. The dude was too persistent about it. So Lane, what's my rule? It will sell anything for money. I'll sell anything for the right price except for three things. Hagrid, Delilah, and Jenny. And the donkey. And the donkey. Most people don't want to buy him. And we probably won't sell the milk cows either. Oh, no, 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 no. The ROI on the milk cows. (laughs) So I got six things now that I can't sell. But but everything else is for sale if you got enough money. Yeah. And and the person who bought them was ecstatic because he had great flushes on them. Unlike everyone else who keeps running into train wrecks on their IVF. And the reason I know this is because the embryologists call me. Because they go, hey, I know you've dealt a lot with this semen. Have you seen this? Not with our lot. <laughs> so, so here's the deal. Would I sell $5,000 a straw semen for Cots cart today? Well, if you bothered me enough, probably. But I'm not going to go out and market it for five grand. No. When's the last time anybody on here has seen me market semen at all? Just at your sale. We didn't even do any semen at our sale. No, we didn't. Just embryos. Yeah. Yeah. So when we do our sales, it's because people call. People know that they can call and they can come and get shit here that they can't get anywhere else. And if they want to spend five grand a straw on it, so be it. But in today's world, Katsukari semen is not worth five grand anymore. No. And I'm going to be the first one to tell you that. Give it a year, and a lot of the semen will be on the market fairly cheap. Just be patient. Sometimes the best thing you can do is be patient. How, how long have you seen me be patient on things, Lane? Oh, my gosh. It took me four years to buy a pickup truck. Yeah. Here's the even wilder one. I've spent the last three years looking for a place to build me boots. And then waited, waited three and a half months to get them. Yeah. If there's one thing in this industry that you can do to be profitable, do you know what it is? Learn to be patient. 
So one, one we haven't talked about. Okay. Ito Michi. Oh, so Ito Michi one by two is an interesting bull. I have a love hate relationship with him. Ah. Uh, so sometimes I use one by two, and I have great results. And sometimes I use one by two, and I have a damn train wreck. But I have enough good results that outweigh the few train wrecks that I've had. I will tell you that, that he is going to give you very square calves. And people in their mind go, oh, square calves are great. They're really great to look at, but they're terrible to calve sometimes. You got to remember, calving ease is important. That's why you don't keep a 130-pound bull calf. You don't keep a 120-pound heifer calf. You don't keep those because that, that trait is bred on, and everybody's like, oh, well, what if they're an embryo? Well, obviously, something in that embryo caused a genetic delay for growth. Well, you get higher <clears throat> wing weights. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we learned that from <laughs> Wally. That's right. Yeah, I forgot about that. Oh, and, and the even better part is, and, and I tell people this all the time, you can, you can make a big calf work. Uh, I'm learning this more and more, and more. the longer I've had these Holsteins, there's one thing I've understood very greatly. When a calf has unlimited milk and can, can work itself up to drinking as much as it can it capacity have and eat good forage, they grow like an SOB. It's amazing. They're big calves. Um, our weaning weights will be bigger than any MasterChef calves I've had in the past. This contemporary group is going to be the largest weaning weight. I bet you we're close to six, 700 pounds weaning weight. But again, there is two Jersey cows and five calves, or two Holstein cows and five calves. So when we pull them, the calves off for the day to milk them just to see how much they have, in one milking, we pull them off at 10 and we milk them at four, we get 13 gallons of milk between the two cows. So... I have five calves drinking probably 16 gallons of milk a day, plus eating all the forage they can have. On top of having a full bowl full of snacks and corn silage, they are growing like at a rate I've never seen in this breed. So if you really wanted to fudge your numbers, that's all you'd have to do. Shit, if you really wanted to fudge some numbers and make it look like you have the best weaning weights in the world, you would go buy a herd of jerseys and uh, dump them out on the ground and then let them calves nurse off them jerseys. So we could submit all our EBTs. Yeah, think <laughs> about Wagyu, this. To Wagyu and yep. mess, mess the curve up tremendously, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, and, and yeah. here's the problem I have with this. These all should be broken to their own like groups, right, Lane? Correct. Raised on dairy, raised on cow, raised on Wagyu. It'd be so simple to do, but I'll tell you right now, uh, those, uh, those people that are running dairy groups, they're going to freaking mess up these curves bad because these calves have unlimited amount of food. And we have huge weaning weights on our ET calves because all them black cows we have, they got, uh, they've got to have a little dairy back in them somewhere. Yeah. Because their bags are so big. It's all the, it's all the Hereford in them. I'll be honest. If there's no dairy in them, it's the Hereford in them. The old world Hereford that, that comes forward in a lot of these baldy cows is why their bags are so big and they produce so much milk. But I'll tell you right now, EPDs and EBVs need to have some more standard to them because there's going to be some people out there that really adjust how things are done. 
and I don't think it's fair. And we're not doing it to F with the curve. We're just doing it because I wanted to see what the ROI was. Yeah. That's why we did it. The only reason we're doing what we're doing right now is I was like, I wonder if we could ROI higher doing this. I can feed less cows and get more calves. That's the only reason we're doing it. Yeah. So I get to feed two cows and they feed five calves. Yeah. Think about it. That's easy math. Yeah. Well, we paid for two cows and the milking machine. Yeah. So I paid the two cows cost me 2,600 bucks. And I paid 2,500 for the milk machine. Yep. So that five grand, five grand. And that would have, that would have, uh, <laughs> less than bringing two calves up on replacement. Mm-hmm. A one because a pallet's 4,600 bucks, a replacer. Okay. So my cost, if I wrap all my costs into this, plus we get milk every week, right? Uh, we're not taking that into any account, right? Yeah. That's just a bonus for us. Yeah. The fact is that I am already ahead with four master chef calves on, or four master chef calves and a black calf, Nido calf, Nido Shiganami calf on these Holsteins. And all we have is the extra feed. Yeah. And that's cheap. Comparatively. Yeah. That's super cheap. Like three bucks a day. Is it? So $6 a day, $3 a cow. That's a win. And guess what? The cows are tame. They're easy to be around, right? Yep. So I'm not quite sure what a lot of people are doing, but that's what we have found on our ROI. Yeah. But again, everything's for sale. You just better have the right price to buy it. Yeah. This conversation makes me feel very unstable. Yeah. Why is that? Because someone come up with the right price, I'm out of here. Well, that's right. It will sell Lane. <laughs> if somebody wants to come and open a new butcher shop, Lane will come consult with you. It's just going to cost you. It just, it's just the thing. There you go. We'll have to have Aaron run the shop. Oh, boy. Yeah, uh, we, we have an apprentice for you. Yeah, we have an apprentice for you. We'll send him out. We'll have him test your facility. <laughs> so, well, we're going to leave you with that. Uh, I hope you guys have a good rest of your weekend. Uh, I think this is going to be posted today or tomorrow. So Friday or Saturday or Sunday, but maybe even Monday. Let's see when Colby gets to it. So let's have another great weekend and I hope you have a great day and this is it for what's new in Wagyu.